Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt podcast, episode 100. And well, what a milestone. And who better to share it with than with Mr. Wesley Shantz? Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Be back and 100th episode. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wouldn't be here without you. I think we've collaborated probably close to 50 times now. So I think we probably have actually podcasted just about the same number of times, including your episode. Man, yeah, I, it's been it's been a lot in a short time, but then at the same, it's like it's flown right. by. Um, I, I, it feels like we just started doing this yesterday. Yeah, what's so interesting to me is just how quickly it's become just a part of my life and something I, I casually right. share with people, not even in sort of a proud way like I used to with CrossFit because who can't have a podcast, right? Um, it's so easy. Yeah, it's so easy. And I, it's so pleasant, too, because it's like whenever I want to hear a friend, if they have a podcast, I can hear their thoughts on something. And that helps me to sort of bathe in their presence or enjoy something that I consider sort of the richest fruit of friendship, enjoy their way of thinking. And that's, yeah. I think, what I'm trying to share with not only you in the present, but largely my students and potentially even my children in the future when they want to know just what a birthing thinker who can wield the logos thinks and how he thinks, um, you know? Yeah. It's interesting to think about how, how the technology will change too. You know, this will be like listening to records on the <laughs> right. old record players, like the big horn thingy that sticks out of it, the gramophone, you know, and like all the weird little glitches and stuff they will have hopefully cleaned up by then. So it'll all be very quaint, but yeah, there's something I think uh, perennial, about the the fascination of of hearing someone's thoughts as they're being worked out, uh, which is definitely how I feel like our conversations and my podcast and everything have been. Right, so, I, it is very so. different, and it's something that I have a hard time explaining to my direct supervisor, the assistant principal at my school. But the difference between a presentation and a lecture or a conversation is is a difference in kind. It's a difference of essence. It's difference. It's different entirely. Presentation is pre-digested thoughts that you lay out in a potentially visually stimulating way in order to grab the attention of somebody due to psychological tricks that you've acquired without understanding largely. Whereas a lecture is actually engaging in the process of thought in order for humans who are highly imitative to be able to embody, represent, and then articulate your ability to think. In fact, you'll notice probably if you had a professor and most people listening here probably have had some sort of teacher or could access some sort of professor online at this point. Yale Open courses are very useful for that. And I have some work that I think could help as well. And you do too. But, um, but you, you, you will imitate those people that you admire. You'll embody their gestures. You'll make fun of them, like professors with very interesting gesticulations. And it's, it's precisely because you're imitating them that you know they've had an effect on you because you literally are embodying how they act and yet you are not yet capable or highly developed enough to articulate what they can articulate, which ideally is what we're attempting to do here, which is wielding the logos or thinking on your feet, thinking in a situation yeah. and adapting to it moment to moment. The uh, establishing the connection with Athena as Odysseus so often did, as it were. Mm -hmm. Or playing tennis. Yeah, the, the, yeah that's, that's the, what I was thinking about too, is like, with a sport or something, how many kids after watching um, Neymar during the last World Cup now like 
have this facet this it's like the first thing that they do when they get touched is to like go down in a heap and and call out for the referee you know right. and it's like partly that they're partly that they're imitating and partly that they're like oh like that could actually work let me try that yeah. and partly probably for fun you know to see if it works just, just to try it yeah right right and so so when when we come to this landmark it makes me think about beginnings and ends and so i I thought I might ask you a couple questions, Wes, about beginnings, about our first impressions of each other, about how we first came to do the podcast and what your initial sort of goals are or were and what, what they are now and how they've changed, we've moved and how necessary it is to actually engage in the process rather than having an ideal and then leaving the ideal in one's head because of its seeming insuperability or inability to be born into the world in a perfect way. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the artistic process from our limited experience with it. Yeah, definitely. Well, as far as first, like we met at St. John's College back in Annapolis. Um, I was arriving there from having uh, worked in, in Boston for a while and then worked in Uruguay for a bit as well. So like a lot of different places, but I'm from Maryland. So for me, it was like coming home. I was staying at my parents' house again for a bit. And then I found a place in Annapolis to stay. Um, but it was like close enough. I could visit my parents on weekends or whatever. Uh, and I was substitute teaching at the time. So it was like all very like run of the mill stuff for me, where I was just kind of like adding this new thing on, which was going to classes and getting that master's. Um, now for you, I feel like you were sort of starting a new life for yourself because you'd moved from pretty far and you were kind of like more I think you were a much more serious student than I was at that point um, in terms of how how hard you worked and how I guess how much you read outside of the the given readings for class and so I remember meeting you I think uh, after one seminar like they had the little gathering um, and then we all hung out at your house <laughs> across from the campus, that place that you were staying uh, with a few other students, Ridgely Ave. Yeah, yeah. Great memories from there. And and I sort of, I feel like we hit it off pretty quickly there um, and just like would hang out and, and do uh, workouts and stuff and play sports and just like, yeah, just started spending a lot of time together and became pretty fast friends. So. That's what I remember. Yeah, I remember I remember several things, but two things that really stand out were I remember two of your initial thoughts that you ever shared with me. And I thought they were very interesting. Okay. And I, I've thought about them a lot over the years, which says something about the quality of the thoughts. But one of the first thoughts you shared with me while we were playing tennis, which was, I believe, one of the first things we ever did after going to get a drink with each other after doing the um, Fulbright informational seminar, which you were helpfully running. We'd had Manhattans, huh. I believe, at Harry Brown's. And with Jerome Dousman, who needs to get on this oh, show, we need to have a show with him. He'd be great. Oh, and, yeah. And um, we were all playing tennis together. And then we started playing tennis. And uh, Tommy Bomb was the great scourge of us and let us not even speak uh, his name. He, he had the same effect on us, I think. But um, we hit a ball out. I think I probably hit the ball over the fence into some ivy. And you mentioned... Uh, being interested in the idea of when humans go from rational thinking to magical thinking. So like you hit the ball and every, just put yourself in this position, listeners. You're, you've just 
uh, baseball has been thrown over your head into like a bunch of thick ivy. You're kind of looking around, kind of looking around when you're young and then boom, it's gone forever. You, it's as if it's never even existed and you see where stories about elves and dwarves come from. And, and so it's true that that happens, that you all of a sudden think something will never end or you'll never find it. And we were so, sort of talking about that or noticing that in the Shinra building going up the stairs uh, with, yeah. with Barrett. And uh, I, I just, I've thought about that quite a bit how we we do regress to that sort of thinking and how to maybe have stages between the ra- the loss of rational thought and that sort of thinking and i don't know i've just thought about it for many years and uh another thought you said that i thought was so interesting is you were trying to live life as travel as if yes. as if you were seeing everything with new eyes and i remember at the time sort of snorting at that i was an arrogant and childish young man uh, so I snorted it much that was good while still receiving its benefits. <laughs> so um, um, <laughs> criticizing the branch on which I live. But you, I remember thinking that sounded like such an interesting idea and that you were really putting your heart into it too because you were staying for a time with somebody who was doing a couch serving or surfing mm-hmm. service and you tried not to own too much. And you had just come back from Uruguay, as you said. And I've... It's, I've done some research into this now, and I think Peterson actually helps too with his concepts of the known and the unknown. But it is interesting how you can actually change the space around you into the unknown very, very, very quickly. And so I think that's sort of what the essence of your idea was, how to keep your eyes eternally open without uh, right. starting to close them, which we literally know actually neurologically happens. As you develop memories of a place, you stop paying attention to the actual... Um, the, the actual immediate presence of the place and see your memory rather than seeing what's actually there. And so you, you, can, you, you can't actually, if you don't get out enough, you know, build sort of a prison of your own sense, your sense being your own sort of like falsified or, or outdated ideas or memories of what a place is. Um, but yeah, I just remember that idea and I've, I've thought quite a bit about it, how to live life as travel and what that means. I, I don't know. Maybe I could run by you that I think maybe I've developed that idea from life as travel to life as hero or hero's journey. Quest. The quest. Yeah. Exactly. Like not just the going from place to place, but the going from place to place with a specific and general goal in mind. That each place you go to, you embody the hero in some specific way in uh, uh, forming the generalized constellation of the life of the hero through the collection of your deeds, which you add to human experience. Um, which, cool. which I think you actually, not to get, I'm, I'm really getting tangential today, but you know, it's a hundredth episode, so let's rock. And, um, <laughs> and which I think you mentioned in your most recent essay. That, and maybe we should talk a little bit about the history of Western thought, where we're going with that and our recent collaborators as well. Um, but, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I think you made the claim and they made me very excited that the world is the sum of all human experience. Uh, so, so, I, yeah. I'll, I'll take credit for that. I don't know that I put it quite so succinctly. Like most of my notes and, and essays are pretty uh, sprawling and, and uh, go all. I, I like the idea that you got that from it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take credit. There, might, there might've been a that where I read a the, but I still want to give you credit for that thought because I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it afterwards. And 
Well, it's funny because something I think we've been learning from reading the phenomenologists and the existentialists like Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, Camus, uh, Sartre, and you've recently read Beauvoir too, um, mm-hmm. is that is that what what is is not some abstract thing outside of what humans are, and that a, a major mistake that say oppressive regimes make is that they try to maintain the function or not the functionality of the system, but rather the purity of the system at the expense of humans who of course are not pure because we embody both good and evil, and that's the subject of every story we tell that's interesting. Um, <laughs> and so what really matters are how humans interact with each other and the things that humans have done with each other because those are the things that actually exist because those are the things that exist at the level of analysis necessary for us to actually notice them and be able to represent them, be able to articulate them and embody them. It's sort of like what Dr. Seuss is uh, implicitly commenting on when he puts the who's on a snowflake and what the (laughs) physicists seem to think when they say there are multiple realities or uh, super strings and things. Oh, go on. Yeah, no, it, that those are great examples. I, of course, immediately think of um, the Golden Compass, where Philip Pullman plays with that idea of of many worlds, and has his characters start to um, be able to. All right. So you were saying, Wes, something about um, the connections I made with Dr. Seuss and so forth, um, relating to many worlds. And so back at it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sorry, yeah. So I, I guess basically the idea that um, you you relate to other people and that this like constitutes your experience somehow mm-hmm. um, seems like you could take that to a, a further extreme and and the idea of the relationship with God is like mm-hmm. the most abstract um, and ultimate form of that experience, that relationship, that reflecting on itself. Um, and then you have like the most interesting works of art, depictions of the, the hero's journey, like, um, you know, Dante's hundred uh, canto, uh, canticle, what is it? hundred cantos, three canticles. Ah, that's it, that's it, okay. So, so the idea that you sort of arrive at this perfection of the, um, of the relationship is like, I think what he's kind of, depicting through that um and it's obviously one of the great uh one of the great works and one that i know we wanted to touch yeah, on. yeah i just want to explore that idea a little bit because dante shows the pinnacle of sort of human achievement as the overcoming of sin as the getting up the mountain to a garden and what that one cannot do without overcoming the malice within one's own heart after blaming politics religion and fate for all one's flaws beforehand and everything in between, even, even a story depicting a certain behavior, thus making us embody it, indicating that true sin is the, is the enslaving of one's will to, uh, to a behavior that is not salubrious and refusing to recognize that and make a change and thus, uh, and thus the slavery and, and, and not recognizing one's, one's error one never gives up one's erroneous ways because we as humans uh, iterate our patterns. And so if you don't recognize a bad behavior in yourself, especially after someone shows you, uh, that's what Dante says, mm-hmm. it sends you straight to hell because you're just keeping a hole in your map of reality. But you said, you said uh, God is sort of the abstract version of the relationship between men. And so if we think of ourselves as sort of like a party, uh, um, like Cloud and Barrett, or um, 
I think of you, it's funny, you were saying in the pre-show, you think of yourself sort of like a ninja. I always think of you sort of like a mage. Um, and yeah. um, it's like we're pursuing a goal together. And it makes me think of Final Fantasy VII, which we are talking through. And it makes me think of Harry Potter, what we're talking through, and that the human life and what brings the best out of human life and produces the maximally meaningful uh, existence is to pursue a goal with friends and have the best of what you are embody itself in your behavior as you pursue something beyond yourself for something more than yourself uh, and thus connecting to those around you by means of imitating goal pursuing uh, pro-social behavior, which is even from an evolutionary perspective, the ultimate thing that a human could do in order to increase known territory and the trust shared between humans and the potential for other humans in the future to imitate that action at an abstract and behavioral and representative level. Yeah. Well, it's also just really fun. I mean, to. Yeah, to and really it, fun. There you go. I, I mean, because there's, there's a sort of like initial attraction to these games. Like I wouldn't have been able to follow much less say it that way when I started playing them. Right. It's just like you say, imitating and sort of learning by doing. Um, but then that. All right, Wes about the nature of friendship and pursuit of goal as sort of a, defi a definition or attempted description of what the relationship between man and God was. And you were saying something and my, my phone or our internet connection was rudely being an obstacle in the path of our heroic journeys, our mutual heroic journeys. And so what was it you sir? I Yeah, I, I don't know where exactly it cut off there, but it's like, yeah, I just like start talking and then I don't hear anything back for a little bit and I realize that it's been cut off. Um, I think I was just trying to say like when you first get into something though, mm. it's much more about the the play of it and, and just the fun of it, um, which sort of drives it along to the point where uh, in, in, a, in a certain way, your, um, your thoughts about it then become the most interesting thing, right? Like the, the game itself is in some sense one among many possible things that well Wes you were saying something about starting to do things because they were fun and I hope this update on anchor resolves these wonderful Ultron like difficulties breaking the fourth wall for us that we've been having yeah well I think all I was trying to say was as much as the reflection and the ideas that you have about the quest start to become important later um, and sort of become the game in a way. Mm. Uh, when you first start with something, it's the game itself that matters, right? And not not this sort of notion of, of quest or something like that. And so I think it's, it's an interesting question to me is like, how do you get to sort of have both of those, right? Like, how do you draw people in um, so that they are enjoying and playing the game but then also um, have them start to make these kinds of connections and start to think about the game and reflect upon it uh, without losing the enjoyment of it. I think it depends on which 
position one would occupy in Quidditch, how one approaches one's uh, level of representation with a fun game. You could be a beater and you could like to throw around ideas and use them to insult people and fight against others with it. You could be a chaser and try and score points for yourself by throwing around ideas. And you could be, say, a keeper and sort of an arch conservative and sort of try and protect the old ideas. Hmm. Or you could be a seeker. And what I think a seeker does is somebody who starts at the fun point of a game but knows that the fun is the golden snitch that one pursues up the ladder of uh, memory systems from embodiment of just fun playing to representation, dreaming about the game and thinking up new strategies to articulation of what makes the game great. I think what makes a game fun is latent information within it that you uh, that is pro-social and salubrious and in across several different domains, which you can't necessarily articulate at first, but why we say team sports are so important. And most people get to that first point. Man, this game is fun. This game is fun. Though some people aren't even sophisticated enough to enjoy certain sports like baseball, of course. And, um, <laughs> or you would say soccer, I know. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we could bandy about like beaters with ideas, but I think we're both seekers, so it's more fun in this way. But I think what happens is that the fun is recognition of latent information or treasure within the game that you mm -hmm. seek out at first just by playing the game because just playing and learning the rules is unknown territory. And so you're seeking through that and getting rewards every time you improve and you improve rapidly and you mm -hmm. dedicate yourself to that. And then sort of the second level would be sort of after you understand the rules and you, you start to improve at, at the game itself. Um, it's not just a new game, but you start to understand what makes this game different from say like if you're a soccer player baseball and you start to say argue with other people right. but i think i think what the essence is or the deepest level you can get to with the game is to understand the narrative that it's trying to tell and for example with uh american football the relationship between the quarterback and the head coach is like god the father and god the son and so what you're doing is essentially you have competing visions of 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 uh, a religion, <laughs> each side that is facing off against the other has a hero that embodies the image of a god, and whoever does that better wins the land, the political struggle, as well as the religious spiritual struggle. And so, awesome. it's a highly Christian game, which is why it oh, makes yeah. sense that it would be so popular in America. And uh, it's essentially a crusade embodied at a more abstract level. Um, you even fight for land, and so. You know, most people don't get there with that game, but that, that doesn't prohibit their enjoyment. But it is precisely that same lemon tree or that same fruit tree from which we squeeze the information out of that other people derive their fun just at a different level of analysis. Yeah, yeah. Would be, yeah. And then, I mean, even people who don't see it quite like that love to talk about the game after the fact, right? Yes. So they're on that same wavelength, uh, as far as discussing, reflecting on, um, fighting over, whatever, wrangling. That's right. It's the same, it's essentially the same wave, just at a different, just on a different part of it. Um, it's sort of, I think, what the medievals were trying to get at, just to tie this back to Dante, uh, with hmm. their idea of the great chain of being. Hmm. And so sometimes people have seen the great chain of being as sort of an elitist concept where 
there are those who are born low and those who are born high. And they make sort of negative connections with the caste system in India and suggest that, say, the majority of human history was, say, uh, uh, a system, systems of oppression uh, keeping uh, essentially equal individuals down. But sort of the problem with that way of thinking is it sort of invalidates the magic of Shakespeare's work, which helped form our language, which we're using now to criticize these notions. And sort of the history plays of Shakespeare focus on kings and their majesty. And uh, if you think of what a king is, like what a head coach is in football, they are a direct embodiment of God and the world. And this, uh, this is why they wear a golden crown and a religious figure places the crown on their head, which is why Napoleon trying to represent reason and sort of setting off the next 200 years of mistakes politically by not having the Pope put a uh, crown on his head, <laughs> how he differed by saying that reason could trump the religious tradition. And well, we see how well that worked out for him. Um, so uh, the great chain of being, just to connect that back, seems we think that that's like a political idea that's out of date. I would say that I think it's more of an ontogenetic or phylogenetic idea of how humans develop during the course of their lifetimes. And I think there's the idea of the chakras and, and um, yoga tantrism. And I think this is the idea of the world tree of, you know, growing roots and growing down the way down is the way up and then growing your trunk out and then growing your branches out and then finally producing fruits. Um, which, and I think those ultimate fruits are pieces of information that are the, uh, the essential gold from the crude matter that you have derived from the sum of your experience, which then is provided as direct experience by means of articulation or representation or embodiment to another. Yeah. I think another element of that too is in Dante's journey, the, the passage through hell, which starts off, which I think corresponds to like the game, which is really fun to play, right? Like that's the part that most people are interested right. in is all yeah. the suffering of, of the of the the damned and the creative punishments and who are we going to see next the great characters that we find yeah exactly but so that in his conception because he has this more holistic view of of this being a piece in a in a whole of a of a journey right like that is actually i think you you see this on the gate of hell right like it's love and compassion which which is what he's sort of learning there um and that's a weird thing to try to to fit in um, without some kind of idea of a harmonious chain of being, right? Like, because when you have um, love without some kind of larger, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a, a metaphysics or what, um, it's sort of like you reduce it to um, physical desire, basically, right? Um, right. But with but with that thing in the background, that that whole chain, then uh, it's it's a it's again it's it's sort of abstracted into this divine um, force, like almost a physical force of attraction, which which leads you um, to the place where you are really made for, right? Like you you have a purpose, you have a, a an end, and that's where you're headed. Right, and that seems to be. And that's so fascinating that you've sort of laid out the sort of, I would say, essence or ontology 
of what a human existence is, of being an individual node within a network of other nodes, and that which is called love or relationship, which is either invisible or visible to you, metaphorically speaking, or at least in terms of real feeling, is uh, the connection between all of you, your relationships with each yeah. other. And that um, we are like a, a tapestry weaving itself throughout time, but that that's precisely why the individual is necessary because the tapestry itself cannot see the force of history is shaped by individuals, individuals who represent the logos who are the eye of Horus or the eye above the pyramid on the $1 bill indicating that that, which is of highest value to Americans is attention and awareness and that individuals are so necessary because they add their perspective to the blind herd or the blind whole, which isn't pejorative about the whole itself, but simply indicating that the ideologies and the thoughts and experiences of the past cannot see for themselves. They offer themselves as bulwark to the, the uh, thought and perception of those who can see today. Um, which I think to some extent is some we're trying to show that the thoughts we have right now today in relation to what is happening and what has happened in the past are the most important thoughts that have ever existed insofar as we are concerned. Right. Right. I think that's, that's kind of what I take Kierkegaard to mean when he says like truth is subjective or subjectivity is truth, or he says it in a lot of places in a lot of different ways. Um, mm. But as far as like the roots of existential um, like lived truth, you know, he's, he's an important figure as well who doesn't get mentioned as often as some of the others, but, but I think he's kind of saying that, right? Like what matters when you get down to it is like how you actually embody your thoughts mm. and how you like have insights, right? Because that's right. all that can matter to you <laughs> as far as, as, right. far as you're concerned. That's it. So yeah, yeah. I'll take it. Right. Because a society doesn't have skills. Individuals within a society have skills. And then we represent that thought abstractly with that articulation by and saying, does a, yeah, go on. No, he, well, he's, he just, he does a great job of like poking fun at the, the Hegelians who speak of like the state, you know, and, uh-huh. and, and world history and stuff and he's just like well okay but you're just like a guy (laughs) (laughs) you know so that i think that that is like a pretty uh perennial thing though right like you can always sort of come up with a a master a master um plan or a system or something and then i think the the correct response to that is like humor and and maybe satire (laughs) irony and all that good stuff so or you know throwing a, a cross with a dead god on the face of it in front of them and saying, actually, it's that. You're not the cross. You're the guy stuck to it. Can you stick to the plan? That's what that means. You are the suffering individual. You are not the plan itself. And I'm pretty sure that's what the last words Jesus indicate as well. That it's like, listen, you were the current embodiment of the God. Sorry, Neo, you're number seven. Sorry, uh, character from New Total Recall. You're one of the many people who have become enlightened. It's like, that is what I think enlightenment truly is. Recognition, not of your godliness, as the foolish Western Deepak Chopra's would say inanely, but rather recognition of your own vulnerability. I mean, it's total nonsense to say that you're afraid of your own power. Everybody wants more power. There's just nothing to it. Um, (laughs) uh, Nobody's afraid of their own power. They're afraid of their own weakness and vulnerability and the fact that they are always exposed without even knowing it, that we are all the emperor's the emperor with the new clothes on it. We walk around thinking we're perfectly safe. It's like one thing you learn when you walk into a mixed martial arts gym, and I'm a blue belt in jujitsu, is that 
you can get messed up by anybody at any time. Even black belts get tapped out by white belts at times. There's no such thing as being like an anime or Dragon Ball Z character where you're such a high level that you're invincible. Not possible. Thomas Hobbes, even though he analyzed, I think, at an unreasonable level of analysis when he falsely equated humans all as being equal, was correct in saying that we are all vulnerable to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that recognition is stark and difficult and why women over 35, according to Peterson's research, uh, are more subject to agoraphobia. Because when you realize that, the world gets scary. And you realize that this, the world is this, what the world is, is the, the sum total of all the decisions and actions you take in it and those around you. And so the choices you make need to be right, or you're destabilizing your environment in a real, not fake, and not, um, not immediately mutable, and definitely not take backable way. Yeah. And when you realize that your life is this actual sum of your decisions and that there is a better and worse way of doing that and that the worst way is destabilizing and causing conflict in your environment, and that's both the Greek ultimate conception of Zeus at the end of the Odyssey and also the Christian idea and also the current Petersonian idea, it's like, yeah, you want peace because you're weak and vulnerable and need everybody else around you to do everything for you except for the one or two or three things you kind of do well. Yeah, the... I don't think you have to walk into a, a gym of uh, jujitsu to see. You could walk into any school, especially a yeah. middle school, and you'll feel that too. <laughs> <laughs> Sad as, but true. As as a teacher, then, like, so part of what I think this would mean for for this project that we're we're on, right, is like these kinds of um, reflections and and s- taking stock, you know, every so often is really important um and as much as we would like to sort of do a lot of interesting projects with a lot of content i think that 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 idea of sort of turning the 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 gaze on on your own progress like and and even to an extent of like um kind of socratic irony or something like that is an important element of it as well that you you sort of question like okay but how am i actually embodying these things that i'm i'm trying to talk about right and like that that seems like an important um thing to do periodically uh and to model doing as well right just as dante suggests in the purgatorio that you work during the day you represent and reflect at night. So sun represents the time of activity and conscious effort being applied in pursuit of a goal. Whereas night, the time of femininity, growth, nourishment, rest, uh, where the silver light of the moon, like Dumbledore's spectacles rules, one doesn't move physically, but rather represents one's movements from the day and uh, develops one's logos by means of observing what one does, representing it accurately, and thus developing strategies for improving that action in the next day. And that's how one moves forward. So not only, and that one can do that at several levels of analysis. And that I think is what we're attempting to do. Not only our specific actions, we're getting better at a technical level. We're getting better at, you know, hitting to each other's strengths and things like that. But also uh, at the top level, at a values level, like how well are we embodying the good or the beautiful or the true? 
um, and can't, how can we measure that in a nuanced and sophisticated way? And, and the more nuanced and sophisticated our mental tools, which I think is Kant's view, the more sophisticated is our perception of reality because the more sophisticated our cognitive apparatus is, the better we see what actually is insofar as a human represents what is to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this makes all you got is you. <laughs> this makes me want to ask then, uh, where has Oscar gone? Like, oh. One of our, I think, pretty objective measures here is like, so how how many of our friends have we got to um, sort of help out with this endeavor, right? Like, and I think that this has grown pretty pretty nicely. Um, just looking at like numbers and stuff, uh, right. whether you, just like on the Facebook group or whatever it is, the page, or in terms of who is um, collaborating and helping make some of these podcasts now. Um, but we've got to we've got to maintain, you know, we can't be losing people with them. That's right. That's right. I'm going to. So, yes, in my performance review right now, I got to make sure that I, I keep the clients. We can't just acquire them and, and uh, let them, you know, drop off within six months. You only get that commission if you if you maintain. And so I'm going to be on Mr. Ortiz pretty soon here to make sure that uh, we we don't fall short, especially because. His shows tend to do the best of any of the shows that I have. He's, oh, he's yeah. got a real charisma to him and a real gift for advertising as well. So um, it's, a, it's a kind of controversial topic, right? Like the greatness of, of ancient men is something that will get people to click it, I think. So, yeah, you want to keep that one going. <laughs> I know. I know. That was part of the idea. And he has, <coughs> excuse me. I think very strong ideas about what greatness is as well as a natural desire to be great. And um, well, why wouldn't you want to hear some modern or contemporary man alive who wants to pursue that in some domain? I mean, it's almost as if you just can't hear the bell from the Polar Express anymore. if You've decided that that's not something you want. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think is, he is one to, to definitely, keep on board as much as what what could support him to get him to to keep working on this with you is it just a time thing you think or i think yeah we just need to make time he he has a natural proclivity i think to to really want to do a lot and i think if we we got down to shorter readings that would be helpful for both of us because i think we have plenty of ample you know we have plenty of material to amplify off of um at this point and uh you know, that the, the reading in some ways is just the touchstone or the stone yeah. in the soup. Um, is, is, uh, all right. So then um, the Great Men podcast, that's one that has arisen. Um, of course, you mentioned the Harry Potter uh, podcast that we've been doing with Sarah. That's been which going is another, has, Yeah, she's been really solid and in spite of like just moving to a new place and starting school. Sounds like we'll continue with that one. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, and potentially even moving forward and getting a booth at a uh, an event at oh, some yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. This uh, there's a convention in Seattle. Apparently, it's around Easter every year, and I think that their window is still open for for applications to do to host a panel or to at least be participating in some kind of uh, way with their with their programming. So we can we can try that out. That would be cool. Be great, maybe um, generating some promotional materials and 
it's funny. It's almost like the more things you do for what you are, the more you become. And not just by means of those materials, but by means of generating those materials uh, in terms of, yeah, the progress that you make on yourself and your sophistication as you promote yourself. It's, it's none of the things, it's none of the banners or the, the logos or anything, but it's just your capacity to generate that sort of thing um, yeah. as you progress. We, I think we have basically like uh, a whole library of, of essay topics within all the stuff we've discussed about Studio Ghibli, Harry Potter, Right, Final Fantasy that could be the 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 seedbed for for paper topics and things to present at conferences. So mm. there's there's sort of this uh, this generative uh, aspect to the to the content as well as as our ability to sort of speak to it and um, right. And as we gain more popularity, it will be a seedbed also hopefully for journalists who like and dislike us, for scholars who don't necessarily want to podcast themselves but want to look at the audacity of two people trying to do something new and criticize, criticize all their failings, which of course they'll find many. Um, <laughs> um, but I, ideally, you know, we are planting a garden like uh -huh. you, you said there. And we also have our friend Vince now looped in a fellow gardener um, yes. Final, and, Fantasy. Uh, Final Fantasy. And he's a, uh, he's so excited. He and Sarah see what I appreciate about working with them. And this is a small difference between, say, them and you and me, and is that Sarah just ate up the whole book, read all of Harry Potter too, and Vince I is know. already way ahead in Final Fantasy. Like that, that's the sort of commitment I like to see. Like I'm always like to the last minute getting my readings done and, <laughs> and playing the video game, and um, and they're they're just so far ahead. And Vince is like, what other what additional materials are you looking into? I'm like uh, Dante and Homer right now. Yeah, um. <laughs> he has the ability, I think, to be a really strong advocate in social media as well, though, like to get to get him uh, making Instagram and Twitter posts and stuff like that uh, to just stir up an audience a little bit, I think would be really cool as well. Yeah, uh, I, I really hope that he has the fortitude to develop a relationship with some communities on Reddit, especially just because he has access to media in a way that we don't. He knows how to get to the places where he can stream the sorts of shows that we would never even imagine, I think. And like, he has real insight into Adventure Time as a show, um, as well as Rick and Morty. And he, he's often been the person that has introduced me to these new and very interesting um, commentaries on the world. Uh, I really would like to do a podcast with him on those two, those sort of inheritors of the Nickelodeon strange cartoon, uh, like Ren and Stimpy uh, legacy. Yeah. Sort of it's mind bending. And he, you know, he's studied Carl Jung quite a bit as well and enjoys mind bending stuff. So I think we have, I think he has much Mako within him. <laughs> 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 and so I was eyes. Yeah, and I, I would say that he is a rogue in our party. Um, definitely <laughs> after his uh, trash collecting days. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, man. Ben, ben, you know, a young single man these days, according to Warren Farrell, not that easy. And you do get outperformed by yeah. women until you're 30. And I think his theory is largely because 
many of them exit the workforce to have children. And so Vince, I, I've always felt some sympathy for because it seems as if it seems as if he's just such a quality person and well, he's going to put it together someday and I hope he does. Um, I hope this helps. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's been a really great, like, energizer in those conversations and asks a lot of really really interesting questions um yeah i think if i am forgetting someone remind me but is the last one then uh your discussions with uh daniel babcock yes yes i believe so okay and what's the status on those yeah we agreed on doing some talks on space epics this semester and so i've just got to nail down the time with him. He's usually sort of like, I can call him up out of nowhere and he's like ready to go. He's got that sort of teacher and just like kind of guy perspective to him. It's like, see him. Hey, what are you up to? Nothing. Want to do this? Sure. And I love that (laughs) to him. He's like, he's like those two fishers from the new Testament where Jesus like, I think, what is it? Andrew and his brother, um, throw down those fishing poles and follow me. And they're like, okay, no problem. That's bad. <laughs> He's like, okay, whatever. And so I, I'm never worried about that with him. Um, uh, so I've got, I've got a, yeah, so you're right. I do need to solidify those things. Starting school three weeks ago has apparently taken a small hit, but <laughs> it had the podcast has now entered my decisions that I make in relation to my school. Now uh-huh. that I realize that my great dream is to give as give as many courses as possible. And I do think generation of curricula is the ultimate expression of a teacher's mastery, um, far more than a dissertation, which I consider a political advocation process in the humanities at this point. Uh, And also there's far more actual neurology and neurobiology and empirical evidence um, housed within my lectures than there is in a contemporary humanities discussion about tabula rasa, which is absolute nonsense after Pinker's work eight, uh, 15 years ago. Um, and so I think, I think another aspect of this is doing the appropriate, instead of becoming bureaucrats or becoming politically minded, ideologically possessed teachers who just, you know, s- stay the party line and say that they're going to help the students that need to be helped, that everybody helped, that everybody says needs to be, need to be helped. Like, no, I think we're going to teach and teach people how to use the mind and teach what we're interested in and teach what has value and has always had value. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to make the rules because we're the actual teachers. And that's what America is all about, that the people that have skills make the things that have value. And I think that's what ancient Athens was about and the problem with the sophists. And so I think this is a declaration of war against the sophists that now yeah. try to rule the field because we're just going to take over without them ever raising a finger against us because we're so small and weak, right? But the slave becomes the master according to the Hegelians, though Mm -hmm. we will suffer the cross, as it were, in the Kierkegaardian way. We're putting in the work. We're plowing the ground. And something I've noticed even in my colleagues, one of whom attempted to challenge me to a debate, but is nowhere to be found, which I will bring up to my students on Monday just to ask them what they think that means. And I will bring up Diomedes and Glaucos from book six of the uh, Iliad in that, in that phase, or excuse me, at that moment. Um, it's, there's no argument against 
what's been done and against experience. Once something has happened, once somebody has staked the ground, it's theirs unless you fight for real. And generally you have to do that by means of putting in equal, you know, equal time and effort. And so it's funny because I've noticed, especially with articulate individuals, that they think that they can just try and argue out of existence the work you've put into something. Hmm. And that's, that's, I think, the piece that so many people in our generation are missing, that you've got to put in the work and you've got to do things. And the, the people actually doing the work, and this is what Teddy Roosevelt says about the person in the arena as opposed to the critic, they don't care what you have to say because all you're doing is saying. And even though our work does involve talking, we're not simply talking about other people and criticizing what they do. We're integrating the thoughts of, you know, the masters into our own thoughts and transforming our own capacities to see the world. Our perspectives are changing live for people yeah. and hopefully we'll change lives because of that. I think that the, uh, the Iliad is a, a great example of that as well, right? Like that was kind of where the, the podcast started for you. Um, taking that text and sort of confronting it, uh, throwing in a lot of the other stuff you were reading um, from the sciences and social sciences and kind of forming your own um, brand of dissertation out of that, right? Like that's right. kind of an ongoing project that you're in. And that's, I guess, what you're teaching as well these days. So I, I fully expect that you'll be able to pick that up with your abundant free time here and keep going, carry forward the Iliad uh, uh, series as well. Um, I do need to. I do need to. And I... I don't, I don't find it a valid excuse to say I don't have time because I can always become more efficient with my time because I'm not overly efficient with my time. Something for the listeners to know is I'm recently dating somebody new who is far more successful than I am in a very much quantitative way. And um, being, being with a person who just doesn't get in her own way and knows how to you know, get things done in the amount of time that she has makes me uh, uh, think, yes, I need to make time for the Iliad, especially because that is my premier and my primary and my first project um and i am actually teaching it again with the students and just something sort of interesting is that um i fully intended to record my lectures on dante i'm teaching the inferno to sophomores right now and the iliad to freshmen i i intended to record myself so that all my time at school was time also used for this podcast which is my way to become a teacher who no longer requires the infrastructural support of a school what could you say YouTube as his platform? Um, and so keep those donations coming. And, um, <laughs> and um, but the thing is, my lectures are, are so personal now. I, I walk, you know, amongst the rows with the students. I look in their eyes. I talk to them. I ask them questions. They respond. And something I, I, I've started to take seriously is just that, you know, this is our time together, students. I'm giving you this time. This is time I could use in order to produce a product that I could make money. Instead, I'm valuing you. And mm -hmm. so I think it gives a certain power to the situation to frame it as like, this is a time when I could be making money, but instead I'm spending time with you. It's like the opposite of like the contemporaries or the, the father of yesteryear's situation where he makes money in order to show love. Well, it's as if I'm not making money in order to show love. And I'm very honest with them about that. And I dress in a full suit when I teach. So I'm very business professional when it comes to what I'm teaching them because I'm trying to teach them to be successful in the world. Um, yeah. 
So, uh, you know, so that's kind of why I haven't, I had had that one plan, but I'm okay with having changed it because I think it's more important to give my, my direct students that time while I'm with them, while also still preparing for the future in which my students, I think, are more abstract and more of the audience that we're talking to now. Um, but I would like my students who have me now always to know that they got first priority while yeah. I was in the classroom. Well, totally. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a big difference between the, the experience of, of speaking, conversing uh, in, in person and in a classroom versus right, putting out the kind of content which is going to be accessible in a kind of general way to an imaginary audience at some right. point. Yeah. <laughs> imaginary now, real yes. in the future, like yeah. the self. Our, um, our audience is the self as far as we're concerned. Um, which I saw you getting to in one of your last uh, podcasts when you were talking about the self drawing you forward. Um, I thought that was, that was excellent. Like when you make a friend with somebody, it's as if your future selves are saying, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. Or, or a, a relationship. Yeah. I think that is, is absolutely the, um, the, the way of conceptualizing it that makes most sense to me right now, at least is, is this this thing that's dramatized um, in Earthbound with the the being from the future returning to the past? But that's sort of what it's like to make a friend, to meet someone who's going to be important, right? That you have this kind of insight into uh, a future which is possible um, and which depends on your choice, uh, but which are beckoning you forward. Um, yeah, that's that's how it that's how it, it appears to me. So that would be the ultimate arbiter of good and bad, whether you are working towards embodying that future self or not, and the choices that you make in the present. Yeah. But that's not socially constructed, but probably far more like nervous system constructed. Um, and probably yeah. what the path of the hero is a representation of the appropriate way to live through life in order to maximize positive emotions through pro-social, trust-inducing, and exploratory behavior and uh, the vanquishing of threats uh, and the dismissing or the appropriate harnessing of negative emotion, like disgust at what, what is foul, as well as fear of what the world could be without your own heroic actions within it. And I, I think that's what we're trying to do, right? Explore unknown behavior and show how vulnerable we are in doing it, which seems to be what humans love watching more than anything. Think of an Indiana Jones or a horror movie or Think of any movie you like where the people are exploring something new, where you're hoping that they'll go around the corner and then, whoa, there's something new. Um, and that in so doing that, we are, we are pursuing the path of the hero in the most abstract and sophisticated way that humans have ever had uh, the technology in order to, uh, uh, to apply, to do. And, yeah. and, and that we're showing people that they can do it too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the point I was going to throw in there was like, this is not like a, 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 an activity that just takes place on screen, you know, or, or in the, the space between your uh, headphones, right? It's like, this is something that is supposed to be a kind of model, or at least a, a sketch towards something that other people can follow too, and hopefully make their, their classes more interesting as a result, right? So one thing we want to do uh, in the near future here is more kind of specific 
uh, and and encapsulated discussions of works yes. that people would probably have to teach. Um, and at least in, in English classes, and maybe we can do some in, in other fields as well, but um, short poems or short stories or things like that, we would sort of model how to approach teaching those in a way that we think is gonna be really true to, um, to the work and to, the, like, to build the capacity of students to think for themselves, um, right. as opposed to you know, whatever state standard you might have to sort of check a box off next to. Yeah, and I think also offering sort of an olive branch. I'm so often sort of uh, like a pugilist with my words, but in analyzing some American authors like Frost and Poe um, and um, Hawthorne and uh, people that traditional teachers often teach and have to teach because of the curricula that they're they're given or state mandated to given to give. Excuse me. We can we can apply sort of our method to books that people might not be able to move away from or comfortable moving away from. So instead of simply saying, oh, well, you should really read these great books and implement them, for some people, that's just not a viable option. But what we can do is provide them with the method by which or, or the, the process by which we go through literature. It's actually making me want to read And Then There Were None and The Most Dangerous Game and do those with you as well. But yeah, it's as if we've been casting the net very wide and now we're going to hit some specific areas. Um, and well, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I think that's something that is hopefully gonna be really practical, um, but also again, to provide a kind of model that you can sort of, you can see how it's done and then you can apply it to whichever kind of work you're, you're dealing with and, and yeah. um, required to or choosing to, to teach, so. And if you're having a tough day and you just don't feel like it, you can throw it on instead. <laughs> Though that's not ideal, but also in a cross application. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, like the example that I did so far coming from my experience as, as a substitute teacher is like, yeah, you, you sort of just get this, this material and you're told to teach it. So at the end of last year, we had the movie Coco to watch for one of the Spanish classes I was um, essentially babysitting for at the end of the school year, you know, and so, but I, I thought it was like a really interesting lesson that, um, that emerged from it, um, from discussing it with the students. So I, I finally sat down and wrote up some of my thoughts about that. And I, I think it's kind of a cool, uh, like jumping off point for this, this project of dealing with specific, um, works that actually get taught in most schools or, you know, potentially could be. Uh, yeah. And I really loved that movie too. I'd, I'd like to go through the Disney corpus with you. Oh, at yeah. point. And I, I think that's got to be part of the trajectory too. It's, it's funny and it's so exciting right now. And I hope people start listening just because of the sense of excitement that we have that it's like, you just don't know. And maybe it comes through in our voice, how much excitement it gives me to think of establishing an entire corpus of conversations on all the Disney movies that exist. Yeah. It's like the sum of information that we can produce from seeing and attentively watching these movies and articulating what we see is just, it's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can offer it to people uh, potentially across space and time in a way that we never have been able to. And so it's like as teachers, our dream is being realized and that we can teach the maximum amount of students, the maximum amount of information. Yeah. Um, we can just and show people how meaningful everything really is. 
Yeah, right. It takes taking these experiences, which would be sort of, um, what's the word? They, they sort of come and go. They're, they're ephemeral. Yes. They, yeah. And, and, and being able to um, have them in the moment, right. But also preserve them and make them more freely available uh, to people who aren't there in, in, in the live uh, moment to, to sort of tap into. I think it's, yeah, it's a fascinating uh, new technology that we've got. And at the very least, we'll be able to look back and see ourselves for what we were and certainly what we were not in our early conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, Wes, I think this has been a, we had some obstacles, but we got through them. Yeah. And it's as if we, uh, this was just another very interesting side quest, though I know it was a contemplative conversation. It had some elements of the side quest. Well, so we touched on a lot of different stuff. Um, some stuff that we've done so far, stuff that we're aiming towards and, and projecting forward. Um, but also it's just been, yeah, really fun spending this time getting to talk with you as always. So I appreciate it. Looking forward to the next. Yeah. What is it they say? Iron sharpens iron. And, yes. you know, how do you become a master through maximal effort and acquisition of skill? How do you do that? By sharpening your sword against another sharp sword. And, well... Let's see how sharp we can get and how much dead wood we can cut away. Hmm. Training. All right. Many hundreds and thousands more of these. That's Wesley Chance. Yeah, we'll do our best. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Take care.